Any other babies in the family besides me? A baby? I'll claim it all. Um, I'm going to talk about Joseph today. Joseph was the baby in the family. Look at this picture. You can probably figure out who the baby in the family is. The oldest one <clears throat> has the baby, trying to get the baby to look at the camera, look at mom. She's reluctant to do that. And the middle one, as the middle one is always, always prone to do, is a provocateur. The middle one is pulling the, pulling the ponytail or pigtail or something there, trying to aggravate, stir, and prod, and poke. Uh, babies get those kinds of attention. I did growing up. Uh, suffered tremendous abuse growing up as a baby in the family. Actually, I didn't in my own family, but I, I was one of the ones closer to the bottom in a long line of cousins who were boys. And so we played a lot of fox and hounds and army and stuff like that. And, and you know, I'd usually be the first one to get locked up, put in the pokey or whatever else. And so I was the youngest and slowest and got caught the easiest, I guess. But uh, the babies sometimes are resented by the rest of the family, the baby and the family are, because they get more, they're treated nicer. The rules don't apply to the babies. They get, you know, get to do what they want. I've heard all that all my life, and I get it. And it's probably true to an extent, I guess. It was in this story for sure. If you want to turn to, to Genesis chapter 37, we're going to be chapter 37, 39, and 41, looking at excerpts from Joseph's life. And Joseph was the baby of family, and that's kind of where we start this story. In, in verse 2 of, of uh, chapter 37, we're going to read verses 2 to 4 together if you want to follow along. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending his flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilphah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and because he made a, and, and as such he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. First thing I want to see out of this text is this. God's plans took Joseph from the privileged, from a place of privilege. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more, Scripture says they hated him for it. Uh, Joseph, as we'll discover in just a second, had a very unique uh, gift, uh, blessing from God. And he was blessed by God to... To, to, to know this, to know his ability to do this, even at a very young age, uh, at, at 17 here, he will see, if you read on in this story, you'll see that he has a dream about himself and in relation to his brothers, and he tells them, tells them this dream, and, and, and they, of course, resent him for it, and we'll see in just a moment, throw him in a pit, throw him in a cistern. But this gift and the fact that he was loved, I think, more by his father caused his older brothers, of course, to resent that, and I, w- I would just ask, what is it about privilege that often rubs us the wrong way? A person with means, a person with more, a person with a life that looks like it's working. What is it about privilege that rubs us the wrong way? I thought about that this week, and there are probably several answers to that depending on your background and where you came from and, and, and the kind of home you were raised in and how you were led to believe that uh, we all deserve that or we all should work for that or somewhere in between those two places. Um, whether it's them having it or us not or whatever the, the motivation is, is, I wonder if it's about jealousy or if it's about entitlement or if it's about both. I would submit to you probably, probably both oftentimes. Um, 
In fact, I think we are where we are as a nation in part because we've been led to believe that fairness is paramount, that everything should be fair, everything should be equal. Everybody should have the same, uh, the same uh, means and opportunity as everybody else does, as, as we all do. And <clears throat> this story of Joseph, in fact, the story of his dad, uh, Jacob, who, whose name was changed to Israel, who steals his brother Esau's birthright. We looked at several weeks ago. This, those two stories and, and dozens more in the scripture tell us this, this basic truth. God is not concerned with fairness. I want to be clear about that to you. He is not concerned in that world and in this world with fairness. Now that bursts, bursts a lot of people's bubbles to hear that truth, but it's true all throughout scripture. We expect life to be fair. And in this book, it just wasn't fair. In fact, Jacob was the, uh, Jacob's uh, <clears throat> being deceived by Joseph uh, before he saw his birthright. The, li- the lineage of, of Christ comes through Jacob. And the lineage, lineage of Christ comes through this youngest one, Joseph here, not Reuben, the older one. And I wonder what it is about those kinds of things that, expect, that lead us to believe that life should be fair when God is not about fairness. Here's what he's about. He's about justice. We serve and know and walk with a just God who is, as I said, less concerned with fairness and more concerned with justice. In fact, he tells us and told his disciples in the New Testament um, <clears throat> shortly after he had taught in, in one of his parables, their response to him was a question, in essence, to say this, why is there poor? Why, why, why do we have poor people around? And he said, you, you, you're going to always have, Jesus' response, I'm paraphrasing, you're always going to have poor people around. There, there will always be poor. That Again, that story and many others in, in, in the scripture leads us to believe we, we, we don't serve and know a God who's concerned with fairness. He's concerned, though, with justice. And there's drastic differences between those two places. Because at the, fore, at the core of fairness is this idea of good and bad. And good and bad are moving targets, depending on how you were raised the situation you find yourself in, the circumstances you find yourself placed in, good and bad can be moving targets. But when justice comes into play, justice is all about right and wrong. It's about truth and error, and that's already been settled in this book. Uh, we, we serve and know a God who, as I said, is not concerned with fairness because, as again, fairness is situationally and circumstantially defined oftentimes according to our need for it. But justice has already been defined here and it's not a moving target. It's, it's clear for us to read. And so uh, justice has its core of right and wrong. And I'm glad it's God who decides who to bless and who not. Who to be fair with, who not. Who to, who to be just with and who not. Who to get uh, his seemingly his hand of blessing and who doesn't. Because I, w- I would blow it if I, if I were the one making those decisions. But he starts here, God's plans does, takes Joseph from a privileged place, secondly to this, from a privileged place to the pit. Look at chapter 37 again, verses 19 to 24. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. These are these brothers talking. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said, to, Reuben said this to rescue him, him from them and take him back to his father. 
So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty, and there was no water in it. Throw him into this pit, into this cistern, and, and, and don't lay a hand on him, is what Reuben says. So their, their, their response to his coming their way was, here comes that dreamer. Here comes that here comes this bull brat. Here comes this little punk. Here he comes. Let's let's in fact let's kill him. What the what the rest of the brothers want to do and throw him into this pit, take his robe back, make a lie to his to to, to, to tell Jacob about what happened to him, and uh, you know go on with life to their betterment. Here's a question I've got for you as it relates to this: Why is hatred seemingly sometimes far more prevalent and far more severe inside the family? Than out. You ever thought about that? When, 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 when hatred is familial, when, when we've grown up with it, it's often harder and, and more frustrating inside the family than out. And in fact, it's even deeper and sometimes even multi generational. Uh, makes me think of an ep- episode of Andy Griffith, where, uh, as most things in life make me think of, where <clears throat> the, uh, the Wakefields and the Carters are feuding with each other. Of course, it's a spinoff of the Hatfields and McCoys. But the Wakefields are, and the Carters are feuding with each other, and one from the, each family decides they're going to marry each other, a young, a young, young man, his bride-to-be. They come to Andy to marry him, and they're, they're, both their fathers hear of it and come with shotguns to Andy to keep him from, from performing the wedding. And so Andy's trying to get to the bottom. It's especially a spinoff of the old Romeo and Juliet story that many of you heard. Andy tries to get to the bottom of it with, by having a conversation with both Mr. Carter and Mr. Wakefield to find out what this feud's about. Why, why are we feuding? And asks him, goes, sits on one of them's porch. He's shooting at the Wakefields. They live miles away, three, two or three ridges over. What are you shooting at the Wakefields for? Because we're feuding. Why are you feuding? Because he's a Wakefield. Well, what's the feud about? We're feuding because he's a Wakefield. What do you know about it? His daddy was feuding. His daddy was feuding, and his daddy was feuding. It's just a feud. That's what it's about. So he keeps running around in circles and never gets a full story of what's at the core of all of this. And sometimes hatred that in a family is that way. It just it festers and festers and festers over years. You look back 20, 30 years, you can't even remember what it was we were mad about. Why were we upset about that in the first place? And I, I've seen that to be true in family after family, that oftentimes hatred is much deeper inside a family than it is for someone outside the family. There's something incredibly wrong about that, and we'll see this, as this story unfolds how, how God uses even that to, uh, to actually both of their good as, as the story unfolds. But uh, the enemy, <clears throat> in fact, I think it's that way because the enemy is successful at getting us to transfer our frustration at the lack of fairness from God, who is one we should be arguing with. Why isn't life fair? Why, 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 why don't I get what I deserve, what I'm entitled to? We transfer this this anger and this this hatred and this animosity <clears throat> from God to a family member, wondering why isn't my life working like theirs is working? Why did they get their way and I didn't? Why is why is their life blessed and mine's not? And this idea of whether it's a sense of jealousy or whether it's a sense of entitlement uh, is is really at the at the core of all this. But both of us suffer for it. I mean, bo- both the hater and the, and the hated suffer for it because there, there, there's 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 angst, there's angst, there's ill will, there's animosity there. And and Joseph was in the pit, but they had a pit of bitterness around their neck too. 
And so and they carried, would have carried that bitterness with them and did actually for years as, as this story unfolds here in Genesis that we can see and read. But instead of just one of them suffering, now both of them are suffering for, for this, this whole idea of, of him be, uh, being in the pit. Do you think Joseph saw the hand of God when he was in the pit? I doubt it. I doubt he saw God anywhere in the pit. In fact, circumstances often have a way of, we think, defining us and telling us who we are. And over and over again in this book, I hear the Lord saying, the circumstances don't define you. Yes, you're in the pit right now, but I'm using the pit. I've got a plan even for you in the pit. And he, he thinks... Uh, he thinks there's probably little little to do to, <clears throat> to help him along. Yet, God sends Reuben to the situation. Reuben's the oldest of these 12 brothers. Sends Reuben to step into the middle of the situation with the other 11 saying, wait a minute, wait, hold on, guys. Let's throw him in the hole. I'm fine, I'm fine with putting him in the pit. But killing him is, is an altogether different matter. Let's just, let's just leave him here. And, and as you read on in, in chapter 37, you'll see that they sold him. Uh, they found some folks coming by, heading to Egypt, and sold them into slavery uh, as they were heading to Egypt. And they bought, uh, got money for their brother, pulled, pulled, him, pulled him out of the pit, and gave them to these folks coming by. But Reuben was instrumental in this situation of getting Joseph to the next stop, getting him to the next situation, getting him out of the pit and to the next situation in his life. I don't, I don't even think Reuben knew he was used by God in that moment, to be honest with you. I don't think Joseph saw it. I doubt Reuben saw it, but God did. And I say that to say he always has a plan. He'll always send someone uh, to, to our aid, uh, and he, did, he does so here with, with Reuben in the pit. But God's plans took Joseph from the privilege to the pit to thirdly to the prison. Look in uh, chapter 39 with, with me, if you will, verses 19 to 23. It says this, When his master heard the story his wife was told him, uh, had told him, and the master was Potiphar, and the story was, was this attempted rape, uh, a lie on Joseph. This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Verse 20, Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him and showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. From the, from the privilege to the pit to the prison. While Joseph was in prison, here's a great phrase that he probably was not even aware of in the moment, but we should be today, the Lord was with him. In the pit, the Lord was with him. In the prison, the Lord was with him. In fact, wherever he took a step, the Lord was with him, and he, he, he discovers that as time goes on. Uh, from his brothers wanting to kill him and throw him into the pit, great upgrade here to the prison from the pit. I'm sure you, you'd agree. Throws him into prison. Boy, this has fairness written all over it, doesn't it? This, this story of Joseph from, uh, from the pit to the prison, and uh, this, this whole idea that sometimes God allows prisons in our lives to follow pits, to, to, I think, to teach us a valuable truth, and that's this. Don't miss this. He allows sometimes worse to follow bad, to teach us this. He's in charge. You're not. He has always been in charge, and we have never been. It's hard for us to, to grasp, and especially in, 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 the, in the me generation and culture we live in, 
But he's the one in charge, and we never have been, never, never will be, if, especially if we know and follow him. But that's sometimes a hard truth to follow. And our prisons, whether they're mental prisons or emotional prisons or circumstantial prisons, our prisons oftentimes are self-induced, yet it's God who gets the blame for us being there. He caused it or allowed it, certainly. But sometimes we, we find ourselves taking ourselves into that place and choosing to stay there much longer than it was his design because we, our, our self-loathing is self-induced. And our prisons, whether mental or emotional, have a way of revealing over time that either way, whether we placed ourselves there or he circumstantially allowed us to walk that place, God has a plan. He's got purpose and design to that. In the, in the pit, he used Reuben as a means of rescue for Joseph. In the prison, he uses the, 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 uh, the warden here and the cupbearer to the king as a way of providing Joseph not only a way through to, to, to better a situation in the prison, but eventually, by way of the cupbearer, a way out. And get this, God will always, always strategically place people in your life to help you through a hard place. Now, sometimes we may not see them in the moment in that hard place. Sometimes it may take months, weeks, years, even decades to look back and say, that's what that encounter was about with her, with him. That's what God sent them to speak truth to me or speak encouragement to me or to speak hang on to me or to speak whatever I needed in that moment. God sent them along, and he will always be faithful to do that. Now, when we're consumed with our circumstances, we seldom see them because all we can see is me and that and this, and I want out. I don't want you to come in and tell me to hang on, tell me you're praying for me, tell me that I need some encouragement. When we look at our circumstances, we seldom see those folks God has sent along our path, but he strategically does that again and again and again, usually either for provision of some kind, for protection of some kind, or in some cases even in the case of deliverance to, to help deliver us from that place. And as I say, in the moment, we may not see them, but over time we'll look back and think, there's a person that guided me in a, in a positive direction in a hard place. There's a person that was praying for me in, in a hard place in a positive direction. There's a person, and sometimes it may be mama, and we, we never even know it's mama. Sometimes it may be a friend, sometimes it may be a, a family member, somebody we work with, that we don't even know they're praying for us, but they are, and we discover it days, weeks, years down the road to say, that prayer brought me through that place. I wasn't even aware of it at the moment, but, but God's provision through you helped me to see Aside of that situation that I would have never seen otherwise. God's plan took Joseph from the privilege to the pit to the prison. And finally, God's plan to, plans took Joseph to the palace. Look at chapter uh, uh, 41 with me, if you will, verses 39 to 40. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one discerning as, as, discerning as and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Joseph found his way out of the pit and out of the prison to the palace by way of the cupbearer in, in jail. While he's in the palace, you've read the story of Joseph. You know this to be true. The king, in fact, he got out of the, out of the pit, uh, prison because the cupbearer knew his ability to interpret dreams. The king had a dream. Pharaoh had a dream. Sins for him. Joseph interprets the dream. Pharaoh recognizes his wisdom and discernment here and elevates him to the second most powerful place in the kingdom, in the palace, as a result of that, that gift that God gave that 17-year-old boy years and years ago. He says here, since God has made all this known to you, uh, the dreams of his brothers threw him into the pit. 
The dreams of Pharaoh moved him to the palace. God will use those blessings, those gifts, those strengths that he's given you uh, for your good and his glory again and again and again. As he, as he explained this to, as to, uh, to Pharaoh, the cut, you remember the story, the cupbearer remembers, there's a guy in prison that could interpret dreams, knew some things about dreams, sins for him. As I say, he interpreted the dream. Pharaoh elevates him to the second most place in the highest most place in the kingdom. Um, this same gift given, given by God, um, yet with totally different outcomes. A 17-year-old interpreting the dream got him thrown in the pit and almost killed. A probably late 20s, early 30s, Joseph here interprets the dream and it gets him to the palace. The same gift, drastically different outcomes. What, how do we explain that? I would submit to you this, that it's about, as, most, as most, things, most things in life are, about time and context. Timing and context. Time, <clears throat> the timing was such that uh, Joseph's dreams were not about elevation when he was 17. They were about revelation. They were about learning some things. The context was here in, in this situation with, with Pharaoh was totally ideal, and, and God, and I think Joseph starts to see the pit leads to the prison, which leads to the palace, which leads to my, to my position here in, in, in the kingdom here in Egypt. And so he never could have saw that uh, coming as, as, as a 17-year-old boy, but drastically different out, outcomes because the timing and the context were drastically different. We have seasons in our life. Here's a quick sidebar. That's the title of a series of messages in August is the seasons God takes us through to teach us some things about himself and about the circumstances in this season and in that to show to us and reveal to us a clear picture of him and a far clearer picture of us, what our life is supposed to be about. Seasons, don't miss it. But he, here was a season in Joseph's life that he hadn't experienced before because everything up to now has been pretty crappy and far from fair. Yet he finds himself second in command to Pharaoh in the palace. Why? Time and context. Time context. Uh, God takes us through situations and seasons in life, I think, to teach us a couple of principles. The first is this. God has designed to everything in your life. Everything. The relationships you have, the job you have, the family you have, the location you live in, God has designed all of that in your life. Always has, always will. So there is never an idle conversation, never an idle situation, Never an idle context or, or un unused time and place that God will not choose to use. Consequently, if that's true, I believe it is. If God has designed everything, a believer can throw fate and chance and, and luck and circumstance out the window. If God has designed everything, he intends to use everything, you and I can throw fate and luck and chance and happenstance away because it doesn't apply to you and I. If, if, if God has designed, and I believe that his book teaches that he does, he has designed everything. The second thing is this, is he is always present. We saw in this story that the Lord was with him in the pit. The Lord was with him in the prison. He is always present. Promise never to leave us nor forsake us, the scripture says. So whether we can feel him or not, and it's seldom easy to feel him in the pit, in the prison, just to be honest, when things are circumstantially not working, it's hard to see him. It's hard to grab it, grab and understand the nature of, of his work and his hand. But he's there, whether we feel him or not, whether we see him or not, whether we see his hand or not. And so whether it's from the pit to the prison 
to the place or a place of privilege that Joseph started to a place in the palace. God is with us. He is, he is always available to us. And so uh, the circumstances may not say so. The circumstances may, may say otherwise. But Pharaoh uh, points to Joseph's wisdom here and his discernment in his elevate, very young man, who he says is very wise for his age, and elevates him to the second most powerful place in the kingdom. Uh, elevates his, his authority and his influence. But I'll, I'll submit to you this. I doubt Joseph felt, felt very discerning or very wise in the pit, don't you? I, I doubt he felt very wise or very discerning in the prison. But here, God brings full circle those two encounters, those two instances, those two, two sets of circumstances to say, I had designed that. I wanted you in the pit. I wanted to teach you some things that the pit would only teach you. I wanted you in prison. I wanted to teach you some things that prison would only teach you to show you that when this day comes, when the palace day comes, you're ready for it. You're not so in love with yourself that you think you deserved it. I, I, I designed those things for you to, to give you some perspective that you would have otherwise never seen before. Uh, I, I doubt he felt, felt very worthy in those places. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is this. That whether you're younger like Joseph was or whether you're older like Elijah was that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, what I want you to see is God is always up to something. He always has a plan. He is always up to something bigger than what you can see. Um, when we can learn to walk in the reality of that truth, I'm going to tell you, life will, will be drastically altered for you. When you can see that it, it is God is always up to something, whether regardless of my age, regardless of my, my wisdom, regardless of my experience, regardless of my maturity, regardless of what I've been exposed to, the things that I've experienced, the things I haven't, He's always got designed to those things, always up to something in our life. When we can learn to live and walk in that truth, life will start to drastically change because our vision starts to change. The places we look for to see him have changed. We no, we no longer look, well, I'm saying we no longer look for him in church. We start looking for him in places far outside of this place. We start looking for him in a hard place. Start looking for him in a valley. Start looking for him on the way up the mountain. Start looking for him on the way down. We start looking for him and start to see his nature and how he deals with us in all those ways and all those, all those encounters. So, <clears throat> if that's true, and it is, that God's always up to something, whether we're younger or whether we're older, like Joseph was at 17, like Elijah was almost very near the end of his ministry. What's our specific takeaways here? The younger is this, that if you're younger, it's about timing and context. It's about God's timing and the proper context for you to see him and what he's up to. Sometimes it takes decades to see that. Sometimes it takes weeks to see that. Sometimes hours to see that. But it is about timing <clears throat> and context. So don't grow impatient because God's timing is for your good, for his glory. If you're older, what I want you to take away is this, <clears throat> is God is never finished with us, ever. If you're still kicking, if you're still breathing, God is never, ever finished with you. He's still in a constant state of refinement to each one of us, whether you're 17 or 77 here today. He is in a constant state of refinement, as we saw last week, pushing us toward Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness is the prize at the end of the race. That's what, that's what he's pushing us toward, toward being like him, thinking like him, seeing life through his lens. That's constantly what he's up to. Well, Tim, all this sounds good. What about the specifics? Don't miss next week. We're going to talk about some specifics that apply to each of us. There are some things unique to us 
But there are some things specific to each of us as well. We're going to look at that next week. God always, always, always has a plan. Whether we see it or not, see his hand, he is always at work.